this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt. One hundred ninety-two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. Hey, this episode of Built to Sell Radio is brought to you by the Value Builder System. I had the opportunity to interview Stephanie Breedlove the other day. She sold her $9 million payroll company for a cool $54 million. How does she do it? She focused on the eight things that drive company value. Things like what we call the Switzerland structure, monopoly control, recurring revenue, all things you're going to evaluate in your own business using the Value Builder score. It takes about 15 minutes to complete the survey. Go to valuebuilder.com. Have you ever dreamt about taking your company public? I know it may sound like a far-fetched idea, but my next guest, Shelly Rogers, did exactly that. She took over a shell company. She did a reverse takeover, and she actually created a public company, even though her business only had 20 or so employees at the time. It sounded like a good idea on paper. It turned out to be an unmitigated disaster. Ultimately, the business was put into receivership. She picked herself up by the bootstraps and started a new business, but she did it in a way that allowed her to keep control of the company. And ultimately, she went on to sell the business for about six times pre-tax profit upfront. A great exit. Uh, here's Shelly Rogers to tell you the rest of the story. Shelly Rogers, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Oh, thank you for having me, John, on the show. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm, I'm, I'm dying to hear about Top Flight, uh, the business that you sold, but I think we have to go back a little further. Um, we were talking before I hit record about this company, Admincom Warehousing, and sort of this this crazy, not crazy, this, this interesting story that you had that, that sort of led to top flight. So maybe just talk about what, what did Admincom do? What were you in the business of doing? Absolutely. So Admincom, um, I started out not knowing anything. I was actually working for a large oil and gas, Imperial Oil uh, company, and really just didn't fit the corporate world. And my mom was working for, back then, the Alberta government telephone. So it was still a privately owned government uh, uh, company. And um, they were outsourcing their investment recovery division. They wanted to find somebody to handle that, which was basically taking all their old uh, telephone equipment and recycling it. And so I said, you know what? Oh, sure. What do I got to lose? You know, I was really young back then and uh, definitely had an entrepreneurial spirit. So uh, my mom said, well, okay, part of the deal is you have to have a warehouse in Calgary, Alberta. And I'm like, well, I'm kind of a little bit young to be, I was actually 25 at the time to be, um, you know, getting this kind of asset. So she said, well, I'll give you a head start, I'll buy the warehouse for you and you can rent off of us. So I started with, the, I got the bid bid on the contract and won probably because I underbid everybody and, and uh, really kind of was just jumping in with both feet. But shortly after, um, we were taking in all their electronic products and, and it was a 25,000 square foot warehouse. So it was a pretty big contract. Um, and we were selling the equipment overseas for scrap, um, which cash flow was great because I got paid before the containers left the warehouse and I didn't have to pay the telephone company for 60 days after. So it was a really good start. Um, but shortly after, before you go further, let me, let me understand the business model. So, um, so the telephone company had all this gear, uh, routers and phones and wires and all that stuff that you would take and you would find a buyer for it typically in the third or emerging economy in the third world. Is that right? Yeah, back then it was actually just getting recycled for the scrap um, metal content. Okay. Got it. So See. it was going to Chinese buyers. Um, they would come and look at, they'd fly over to Canada, look at the equipment uh, and basically pay on the spot. And then the containers would would uh, go overseas. Yeah. Interesting. So they're uh, buying the, the copper and the you know, all the, the raw materials and they're paying on the spot. So you're literally getting a check from them or a wire transfer and then what's the economics between you and the phone company? Are they paying you to haul it away? Are you having to pay for some of this stuff? We would pay uh, just cents on the dollar for the equipment. Um, so it, it was, uh, we would take the equipment out of their warehouses. And this, back then, they had a lot of precious metals. So there was uh, palladium, platinum, gold, and it was all the big telephone switches that were um, 
uh, like they were just massive equipment. Now, now it fits into, you know, a teeny weeny little room. But back then it was floors, office floors of this equipment. And yeah, and then we'd basically get paid. But what was happening was probably about six months after the contract started, I noticed that we're getting brand new equipment that hadn't even been installed. So I went back to the telephone company and said, hey, like, let me resell this. You can, you know, we'll both make a lot more money. I'll do it on consignment and take a commission for the product. Um, so that program made them millions. And I then started expanding across Canada to all the different telephone companies. And then they started privatizing. Um, but we had pretty so much... Why, why were they getting rid of the new stuff? Oh, a lot of times it was just, you know, the buyer purchased incorrectly. Huh. Um, like it was just because it, it was a government run business and they just had so much waste and it was just saddening for me to go this is brand new equipment and it's going for scrap you know it's going into a shredder to to basically be gleamed for the metal content so yeah that program was very successful and then ended up bringing on a lot more employees because we had to um, inventory the pro uh, all the equipment and we did warehouse the equipment for them as well and then sold it uh, on consignment. So how big did you get the company before, you know, you started to look at, at, at sort of eventually what I think you, you did was take it public, but, but how kind of, what was the revenue when you started to look at different sort of growth options? Well, we were growing, um, on average, over the seven years, about 70% growth rate. Um, and before we went public, we were probably sitting at about 20 staff. And then it grew quite quickly on, on the, on the public when we, when we took it public. Got it. So maybe talk about that because I think a lot of people uh, listening, you know, obviously they're aware of the op the exit option of going public. They would, they, you know, they'd certainly know of, you know, very high profile public offerings. I, I think a lot of entrepreneurs don't really see it as a viable exit option. I mean, they think of, you know, companies like Google going public, but not, you know, 20, you know, 20 employee companies going public. So how did that actually work for you? Well, it, it ended very badly, but I learned a lot along the way. And um, I look back now and, you know, I think things happen for you to learn and grow from. And that was one of those lessons. So we ended up, I remember making a presentation to a think tank group or my forum saying, you know, go big or stay home. So we we're probably about the seven year, a seven year mark of, um, of, you know, very successful private company. Um, we were winning, you know, entrepreneur of the year, women of vision, all kinds of stuff. But it was right at that cusp when um, recycling was becoming very more public, like um, in the media, because uh, it wasn't cool to send the product overseas because uh, there was a lot of highlights of, you know, not uh, the Chinese not using the proper equipment. Oh, there was I saw child this, labor. I, I saw the 60 Minutes episode. Oh, my gosh. It was the most depressing thing I've ever seen because you had these steaming piles of like copper and, and it exactly. was just horrific to see the environment being kind of scorched in that way. So you were you were wrapped up in some of that stuff? So we were just saying, okay, well it's knowledge to us now, like we were doing that for seven years and it was a successful business model for us, but now we want to do the right thing and we want to be the first of, you know, um, pioneers in the industry to be doing the right thing. So that was part of the reason to go, to go public was we needed to raise some money to buy the proper equipment. So in order to do it correctly, we had to invest in a lot of high tech, uh, equipment to do the recycling. And in order for it to be viable, you needed a lot of volume and Alberta or even Western Canada did not have enough volume for the plant that we ended up purchasing. So, yeah, so we were getting a lot of media attention. We, I really was lobbying the Alberta government uh, to put a program in place because what was happening then was everybody wanted to get on board and recycle in our, you know, our current uh, country and not, not ship or export uh, to underdeveloped countries. And they were starting to put, rules and legislation in place that you couldn't ship overseas anymore. So basically, um, it was, it was important for us to do it in the proper way. And what was happening was a lot of companies would gleam all the good 
products or anything that had the precious metals. And then they would leave the things that were really difficult to recycle, like um, the leaded glass and the CRT monitors. And so then there was warehouses full of this product that uh, they basically, you know, closed the doors and people had to deal with. So uh, Alberta was one of the first provinces to put in a electronic recycling program. And actually, California was also uh, the first state in the U.S. to put in a program. And uh, what they were really doing was trying to also include the manufacturers of the products to start making products that were more environmentally friendly. And um, and it, the Alberta uh, program, basically, when you buy a new computer, there was a you know, certain amount of a fee that was put into the, it was an environmental fee to help the electronic companies, electronic recyclers, make sure that they could uh, recycle these products uh, properly so and to, get paid for some of it. So I want to kind of go back to something you said earlier, which is this this sort of forum. It, like, it sounds like it was an EO forum. Yes, exactly. Yeah, so you're, so, so, so you're in an EO forum. And I, you know, I don't know about you, but I find some of these EO forums, they, they get a little bit macho, a little bit like, like, what are you doing? Why aren't you growing faster? Like, it sounds like you kind of got egged into going public. And to sort of egged into, uh, you know, taking this business to a place that that you weren't necessarily planning to take it. Is that fair to say? Um, I wouldn't say that it was my forum that uh, that pushed me in that direction. I think the management team that we had at the time was. Uh, you know, we had an advisory board, we brought on a CFO at that time. And I think that there was a bit more, um, and, and don't get me wrong, we all had that board meeting and we all agreed, yes, okay, we're going to move it forward and, and go down this avenue. Um, but I think if I look back now, I was a bit hesitant, but I'm kind of a perfectionist anyway. So I always seem to take a bit longer. And at that time, it was like, you know what? No, the timing's right. Uh, the governments are, you know, it, everything's changing. There was a lot of consolidation in our industry um, with a lot of companies that were reselling electronics. And also then there was the big companies that were recycling. And so there was a lot of uh, consolidation between different uh, companies as well. So uh, as much as I would like to say, yeah, you know, poor me, I, I, you know, went down this avenue and it wasn't successful. Um, I did make that decision. And uh, yeah. Where do you think, so, where do you think, I mean, like, as I look at your career, I mean, you're 25 year old, you're running a 25,000 square foot, uh, facility. Uh, if I'm doing the math right, you're like in your early thirties and you're taking a company public, uh, and, and, you know, wanting to take on the world. Is that like, where's that motivation coming from? I mean, Oh, I always have had big goals. I think my goals sometimes, <laughs> I, I don't know. I just set big goals and I'm, uh, I have a very good work ethic and, um, where's that from? Like, you know, us, you know, as parents, we're all trying to figure out the magic formula. Certainly I am about how do you instill in your kids that sense of drive and work ethic. And I mean, it sounds like you had it from a very young age. Uh, I grew up in a family that did not have a lot of money. And my father was uh, in and out of illnesses. He had a very bad back. I think he had three or four um, uh, back surgeries. And he died when I was 21. And so I think um, he was only 50. He had a heart attack. Um, and I just think from that moment, it was like life is too short and I just want to fit as much in as I can. So, and my mom's uh, got an amazing work ethic too. So I think it does stem from a few things, um, definitely. And, and, you know, my dad and I never really had a great relationship and I think I just always wanted to make him proud. So, uh, I think that's kind of where it all comes from. Well, it certainly, it certainly comes through in, in, in your story. So, okay. So you've got this, you know, the, the landscape is changing in regulation, the environment, the environmental laws and so forth are changing. I get all that. Uh, you, you convince yourself that you want to go public to raise the money to sort of play in this, in this, change the way people are recycling these products. But take us through the actual mechanics of going public. Again, when we think of going public, we think, you know, Google lists on the New York Stock Exchange and is that the way you did it? No, no, not at all. So what we did at the beginning was we acquired a couple of companies. We knew that um, we needed the volume from California, the U.S., um, in order to 
have a viable and profitable business. So we acquired a company in San Jose. Where'd you and get the money to acquire a company? Actually, with that one, we just, we, it was all with the kind of, uh, it was shares. So basically we're offering shares in the bigger entity. So at Mincom, then we changed our name to Maxis Corporation and everybody kind of got a piece of the company uh, based on their valuation of the uh, organization that we were acquiring. And they were small companies, they weren't too big. Um, but the one in San Jose, we wanted to definitely have a footprint in uh, San Jose. So that was then our headquarters when we went public. But we went public by way of a reverse takeover of a shell. So uh, this was all new, new to me. I, you know, had a successful private company, but um, all the lingo, all of that, we were relying heavily on our CFO leading us in the right direction. Um, so we bought a shell company out of Delaware. Um, I think it was about four or 500,000 US. And uh, from there, that was our, our venue to... Um, start trading. So we did an initial public offering to friends and family uh, and raised three million. And then um, that was able, we were able to bring the equipment over, uh, start processing and uh, recycling the equipment in Alberta. What percentage and, of the companies did you have to give up to, uh, to raise that $3 million? Oh, gosh. Oh, I have to go back and think about that. Um, it was like maybe 10%. So you've got a pretty high valuation at this point. Yeah. But then it crashed pretty quickly. <laughs> so um, we were going for our second raise at $8 million And the CFO... So what does that mean? So before you tell the story, what does that mean to go for a second raise? So your public company, your, your, your stock is available in public exchange. What do you mean by going for a second raise? So we weren't on the stock exchange. We were on the, like what they call the pink sheets, the OTCBB bulletin board. Um, so basically um, we were looking for, uh, our CFO was going for a letter of intent to basically have, yeah, somebody come in and, and bridge financing is what we were looking for at that point in time because we were not implementing our business plan and the cash flow was starting to crunch pretty quickly. And then at that point in time, our CFO pretty much submitted about four false letters of intent. And it was every day, oh, no, the letter of intent is going to be signed, going to be signed. And needless to say, there was no letter of of intent and we hit the wall really, really hard. I think the hardest thing for me was I had built all these relationships with my suppliers and my buyers and, you know, I'm, I'm telling them, oh, no, no, the money's going to be in the bank. Like everybody was looking for cash, wanting to get paid. And uh, it was the integrity part for me that was the hardest that I really trusted the C CFO um, to deliver that cash in order for us to, you know, keep those existing relationships um, yeah. So, and then I, found out, oh, go ahead. I guess where I'm struggling with is, is the change in business model. So I, I understood the old business model where you go to the, the phone company and you say, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll pay you whatever, uh, $10 for all this stuff. And then you go sell it to some recycler that wants the, 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 you know, the, the raw material for $20 and you make a margin on that. I kind of get that. I, I also understood the, the, the model where they're kind of getting rid of, you know, really good, lightly used or even brand new equipment. And you're doing that on consignment. I get that business model. How has the business model changed such that you're running short on cash? Because the old business model was cash flow positive. You were getting paid before you had to actually put anything on a, sh on a, sh a shipping container. What's exactly. the business model? under this new CFO and the new public like public company such that you weren't just, you know, swimming in tons of cash anymore. So what the Alberta program looked like was we would not get any government funding until after the product was completely recycled. And we, it was, I mean, we did have some, you know, impressive uh, equipment from Germany that was processing. So I, I called it like a big coffee grinder. You know, we'd have the forklift and you dump in photocopiers, you name it, all different types of electronics. And it would smash it around like a big coffee grinder and spit out at the bottom end. So you go from having to, a positive cash flow to, to negative. So now you're buying the stuff from the big company 
uh, and you're financing or, or you've got to wait until the big coffee grinder does its thing and then you submit the evidence to the government and then the government sends you a check. Right. And then again, you're still you're selling the products at the end and there's still sometimes, like I said, the leaded glass that you had to pay to get rid of. So at the beginning, um, there was companies buying all the end products. So we had aluminum, we had copper, we had, you know, the different types of plastic sorted, the precious metals. Um, uh, but then all of a sudden there was too much supply on uh, the leaded glass. Corningware was actually buying our leaded glass and they said, nope, we have way too much. We're not buying. And then we had to actually pay to get rid of some of the products. Toner was another one that was difficult uh, to recycle. And our mandate was zero landfill. So we were really trying to find creative ways also to um, recycle these products. Like, for example, the toner, we were looking and working with the Alberta uh, universities to try and put it into asphalt. Um, so there was a lot of research and development in some of um, the products that we were, or the commodities that we were trying to recycle. There was a lot more overhead. We were expanding ge geographically. So we had sales offices across Canada. We had, uh, we did uh, office in Mexico City. We expanded to Mexico City. We had a joint venture in Chile. So we were doing this huge expansion and uh, yeah, definitely was sucking up the cash. Hmm. So the CFO is telling you that, oh yeah, we've got these letters of intent for additional financing. And, and that turned out to be totally just made up? Yes, false. And uh, after the fact, we did find out he was actually, um, I never knew what this was, kiting. Have you heard of the word kiting? I've heard the word, to be honest, I don't know what it is. Okay, so he would take cash from Canada. He would... Um, wire it to our U.S. bank account in San Jose. Then it would go to the Shell company in Delaware bank account that we did not know what even existed. So all the, you know, we had all the stringent practices in place with dual signatures and all the accounts and all the safety and, you know, all, all of that. But he would then send it to the Delaware Shell and write himself a check. So, yes, we found that he was uh, embezzling money as well. Wow. So, mm -hmm. so, well, that just opens up a whole can <laughs> a lot of, <laughs> lot of So how did you find this out? It was after the fact when we put Canada into receivership and I was just desperately trying to pay back all the, you know, clients that I could. And, um, yeah, it just kind of started doing the trace on, on the bank accounts. And it was like, well, how could this be? Yeah. Oh, and he, uh, also I was cleaning out his files and found some stuff and it just kind of led to the next. And it's like, okay. And it wasn't a whole lot of money in the scheme of things. And everybody always asked me, you know, did you, did you charge them? And at that point in time, you know, I, I'd lost my company and, um, my marriage was on the rocks. I had, you know, two young children and it was that kind of defining moment actually when I came home and my son was, oh gosh, probably four years old. And he's like, mommy, 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 did you get the money today? And I just kind of fell to my knees and I just went, no, no, son, I, I did not. And I, I, that was it. It was like, okay, I'm stressing out my kids, you know, did you get the money? And it's not worth it. So that's the day that I decided, yeah, let's put everything into receivership and close it down. So that means declaring bankruptcy, right? No, I did not declare bankruptcy, um, but basically we appointed our own receiver and basically kind of paid back who we could, you know, made good with all the employees and, um, you know, all the taxes and all of that. So um, there was definitely some people that lost money. And, and I think the hardest thing, too, was that first initial public offering where a lot of my family and friends that uh, invested. So at this point in time, I was in full-fledged depression. <laughs> and, uh, you know, just, uh, I took about a year off, actually, um, just to kind of, and I just slept. I was exhausted. So yeah. tell me about the, f the f family and friends. So they, they put in three million bucks. Um, what was, how did that, I mean, how did you tell them how, how you know, that kind of stuff? Okay, so um, majority of that initial public offering was probably 
my cash and my my husband's cash. Um, but still, I mean, there was there was even forum mates that uh, invested. So uh, I was under so much pressure because um, yeah, it was just so detrimental. At that point in time, they were watching the stock. Um, so there was only a couple of people that I, you know, came up and said, what are you doing and how am I going to get my money back? Um, but majority of them just kind of watched it and, and, uh, there wasn't too many comments, but there was, there was a couple that were very, very, well, I don't even know how to explain it. It was just damn hard. <laughs> Can you describe one? Um, yeah, uh, it, um, there was a gentleman by the name of Dave and, uh, he came up and just said, what are you doing with my money? I want my money back. And I said, you know, I'm doing the best I can to implement our, uh, business plan. And unfortunately things aren't going, you know, the way that we planned, but I, I can't, I can't give you your money back. It's gone. And I started crying, <laughs> which I'm usually pretty tough. Um, and, uh, yeah, he, he, he didn't let down. He was, you know, pretty harsh. And I, it was just like, there wasn't anything I could do. In fact, at one point in time, I was actually putting my own cash in to bring the value of, of, you know, the trading up, which was ridiculous. Um, because it, it didn't last long and it just kept going back down. So, uh, never throw good cash after bad cash. Learn that lesson as well. Mm. What effect did the the business going going kind of bad badly have on your marriage um the whole that whole time frame so probably from the time we decided to take it public all the way through till it crashed was probably a year and a half two year time frame and oh i i would have to say my marriage was over before it ever got to the point where we both agreed it was done. Um, but I, I was just so focused. He was also working in the business at that point in time, um, which also caused probably a lot more conflict um, for us personally. And um, yeah, I think just finally when everything was done, it was like I actually had time then to focus on my personal life and say, you know, this isn't working. So, Did you confront the CFO? Um. Oh yeah, I did confront him that he about embezzling the money. Yeah, well, about everything—the lies regarding the the letters of intent, the the kiting. Like, oh, did did you kind of confront him on those things? There was a board meeting, and oh my gosh, I'll never forget the amount of the whole executive team at this point was just you know not on the same page, and the board meeting, uh, one of the our, um, David from San Jose and he was this big Hawaiian gentleman. He had to be six, six, like massive guy. And he's standing at the board table, standing up with his hands on the table, yelling at our CFO. And I'm going, Oh my gosh. Like it was so intense. And, uh, I think, uh, our CFO almost had a nervous breakdown as well. So it was, it was, it was just, it was bad. <laughs> By the end, it was really bad. Yeah. Pretty intense. What a story. So, so you go and take a year off. Yes. Yeah, so how'd you finance the year off if you're kind of broke? Uh, well, I still had, I think what saved me is early on, I invested in some real estate and we put that into a trust fund. So I still had some real estate that was rented out that was helping pay bills. Great. Great. Yeah. So it gave so you a bit of diversification at yeah. the beginning. <laughs> Saved me. Yes. A bit of breathing room to kind of plot your next move. And so t tell us the sort of rising from the ashes story, because that's exactly what you did. It sounds like. So top flight, then incorporated top flight. And I said, I'm too exhausted, but we had some really key, amazing employees. Um, one that had been with us for 10 years. And I said, if you guys want to continue with uh, 
doing what we're doing. I'll help you guys get, you know, started in business. Um, and you guys run it. I'll do a board meeting once a month. Uh, but basically it's your baby. So we started that and they both became shareholders, minority shareholders. And I had, um, I, I had ended up with 50, I think 56% ownership and they both had 22. Um, and probably four months in things weren't quite going as well. They, they're amazing salespeople. They knew the industry, they had the contacts, the sales were there, but they're not very entrepreneurial. So I did step back in probably within six months, um, in helping run that more on a day-to-day basis. But yeah, I definitely was taking quite a bit of time just to get my health back into, uh, where it should be. So. so, so again, top flight, uh, so you were in the same business of recycling, uh, uh t- no top flight did not actually do any of the recycling. So when we ended the big public company, um, uh, company called, uh, e-cycle bought the plant and equipment. So top flight would just do the asset recovery services. So we'd refurbish and resell and any electronic recycling that needed done, we would contract that out to eCycle. So asset recovery services sounds like one of those industry lingos that nobody has a clue what it is. So, <laughs> so explain that to me in layman's terms, like you're talking to your son, what, what does an asset recovery business do? So we would go to large um, organizations and take out their same, same as what Edmincom did take out. Now it was more of your computer products, your networking gear. And then we'd refurbish that and resell that wholesale on the wholesale market. We did a little bit of retail, but very little. Um, so mainly it was large corporations, contracts. We try and do two to three year contracts um, with just reselling and refurbishing electronics and telephone equipment. Got it. So there's, there's people out there who want the brand new stuff, the brand new router, the brand new phone system with brand new computers, whatever. And then there's also companies that don't mind buying it a couple of years old and, and you would basically exactly. make that yes. the connection between the two. Got it. Okay. And it was a great, um, business, even when the economy was down because people would want to buy, you know, they would want to spend less money and buy refurbished products. Uh, and then also when the economy was good, there was always a surplus of products. So it was kind of a interesting model. Um, I wouldn't say it was recession proof, but definitely, uh, had the cyclical markets kind of covered. And how did the cash work? Were you buying the stuff on consignment or were you laying out cash to buy we still had some consignment programs, but majority of them, uh, at this point in time, they were even, we were even charging for some services. So the security of having your hard drive, um, wiped. So there was no confidential information on it. Uh, we, at this point in time, we also had a, uh, shredding machine that would take their, so we do an onsite, uh, shred of their hard drives. So especially with the doctors, like lawyers, doctors, anyone that had to protect that uh, personal information, it was uh, a service that we would actually get paid for. Got it. Got it. So you're you're in business again, doing it in a and it sounds like in a in a more maybe informed way the second time through, but in a similar industry. You know, how did you how did you continue? So you step back into the driver's seat after six months. I mean, take us through you know, the, the growth of that, at what point did you decide to sell top flight? So top flight was, I would say a lifestyle business. Uh, I definitely learned that balance is required and health is important and family. I was tired of watching my two children, you know, be raised by a nanny. So definitely a lifestyle business. And it was probably again around the seven year mark when, uh, I was in a conference actually in Queenstown, um, Queenstown, uh, New Zealand, uh, New Zealand. Okay. Yes. So, uh, entrepreneurs organization conference. And I met this fine young man that uh, lived in Australia. And uh, we started um, dating long distance. We're like, okay, how's this going to work? You live in Australia, I'm in Canada. And uh, yeah, he's my soulmate. And it was at that time, I'm like, you know what, I need to sell and I want to move across the world to uh, be with the man that I love. 
Wow. So that's, that's a big triggering of that. <laughs> Usually we hear, you know, you know, uh, I got an offer or I got, you know, uh, I got bored, but, but you found, uh, a new husband, 2000 miles away or whatever it is. Yeah. Long way away. So yes, from there, um, I went to the, my two partners and said, do you guys want to buy my shares out? Do you want to buy me out? So I gave them first option and we tried to come up with, you know, a payout plan, but they, it, that, that didn't work. Why not? Um, oh, they didn't have enough cash mm-hmm. at, the, at that time. And, um, even with the payment plan, I didn't, you know, it was starting to go out to five years and I'm like, yeah, no, I don't want to wait five years. Let's see if we could sell. What multiple of EBITDA were you, were you using to potentially sell it to your employees? I was at a uh, five. So you were offering them basically, uh, look, buy it from me at five times EBITDA. You don't have to give me the cash up front. You can pay it out to me over, you know, years and years and still they weren't able to come up with some upfront payment to make it worth your while. Correct. Got it. Okay. So where do you go from there? Plus I also, I was looking for a win-win and I, I felt that um, even if we did a merger or somebody bought us out, that there would be extra volume, you know, extra services. If we could find the right fit, that it would be a better and stronger business uh, if we had somebody else come in. So that was the other point as well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So from there, I went to sell your business course, hmm. and I'm sure you I don't, you heard no, other never, people go. Never heard of anything of the sort. So tell me more about that. Yeah. So sm- sell your small business, and I was in the room. There was probably about 20 other people there, and uh, they kind of go through the whole what you need to do, what we're going to do, and and uh, so I kind of looked at that model and looked at what they were charging, and I said, you know what, I think I can do this myself. <laughs> so here, here's Shelley with her big you know, big goals and dreams. So I found there was a, um, uh, one of the electronic recycling conferences, there was a a company called Canaccord, I believe, that did this huge PowerPoint presentation on the industry, you know, how big of an industry it's going to be in 2014, I think, into 27 billion or something like that. And, and then it had all the top um, hundred electronic recycling companies by size. And it started talking about multiples because there was a lot of amalgamation going on, a lot of acquisitions. Uh, people were trying to do, you know, grow by acquisition model. And so the multiples were ranging EBITDA between probably three and a half up to as high as seven or eight. So I thought, okay, well, I got a little bit of a benchmark. And then I went out and, um, I thought, okay, you know, who's going to be a good fit for a win-win purchase? And so there was a lot of the electronic recycling companies that were looking for a company like ours to add because they had the product, but they didn't have the knowledge of who to sell to or how to refurbish. So I built a list of probably about 150 companies and I sent out just a kind of a anonymous info sheet that, uh, you know, we're looking to sell. At this point, we had eight employees, um, you know, talked about the facility size. At that point, we had a 6,400 square foot facility. So r- rather modest. Um, and then, you know, at that point, five-year revenue growth, 45%, profit margins at 43. And, uh, you know, we had in 2000, I think it goes back to 2012, um, our top 10 customers accounted for 37% of our revenue growth. So we really had a fairly diverse customer base and it wasn't, you know, one big contract. Um, and this really highlighted what our services are and what we could do. And from there, narrowed it down to, I think it was seven very serious uh, buyers. Uh, some so, of them were recyclers. So these seven people contacted you on the back of the, the anonymous letter? Yeah. If the letter was anonymous, how do they actually contact you? How do they know who to contact? Oh, um, we had a separate uh, consulting company kind of do that. Because at this point, we didn't really want to tell all of our employees. Mm -hmm. So my two partners knew, but we kind of wanted to kind of keep it hush-hush until it was serious. So we just had a separate consulting company do that. Got it. Yeah. And then, so the seven, we had them sign an NDA and confidentiality agreement. And out of the seven, we had three that were pretty serious. And one was um, one of our largest customers. 
which was a leasing company, one of the largest leasing companies, uh, independent leasing companies in the world. Actually, they're pretty big. Um, another one was a recycler. Actually, the other two were recyclers. And I did a closed bid. So I don't know if you've heard this from your listeners before. Basically, sent out the three that here's the documents. Basically, they just had to fill in. So it was an asset sale. Um, you know, wanted to deposit up front if they were serious. Um, and, you know, what's the, the number that they're willing to to pay out for cash with um, we did. We ended up doing a three three year earn out as well. Um, but so out of the three, the one, we had two that were quite serious. The third one actually sent back the bid with no number in it, which was weird. And they just said they wanted audited financials. So that one was out. And, um, we ended up going with the company, um, which was the leasing company and they didn't actually have the highest bid, but we felt that it was probably the best fit for ongoing success of the company because both my partners were staying on. I did a one-year uh, employment contract and I was out and moved to Australia. Got it. And so what was their bid, the um, the leasing company, uh, you know, as a multiple of EBITDA? So we ended up with six. Six times EBITDA. And, and was that it before the earnout, or did that include the earnout piece? That was before the earnout, but what got a little bit, so our negotiation took a couple months from the time we got the letter of intent, um, was there was a stickler on the earnout. So we always had a high commission um, program in place for our sales, but we always did the um, commission based on, so the sale price, less the cost of goods, and then the um, salesperson ended up getting uh, 15. Gross margin. Yeah. Right, gross okay. margin. Okay. Um, but the earnout that they wanted us to do was a three-year earnout, staggered. Um, yeah, it was staggered over three years. Uh, actually, ended up getting kind of complicated. It started out with a certain amount of months at seventy-five percent, then it dropped to fifty, and then thirty-five and twenty-five as it continued out over the three years. But they were basing it on net profit, not gross profit margin. So. This is when we were finally negotiating the final number. I had a, a mentor that was helping me through this process, Keith Brown, bless his soul. He said to me, he goes, um, okay, forget the multiple, right? Because we're saying, okay, normalized EBITDA, you know, we got to add back this and add back that. And it was getting all really picky. And um, the CEO was down. And I remember this, we're all in the conference room and he was so intimidating, but, uh, you know, we're trying to negotiate this and he's not budging at all. And, uh, so we, we kind of had dinner that night and we're going to continue the next day with more negotiations. And, uh, I called Keith, my, my mentor. And he said, Shelly, forget the multiple. It's a number that you have to be satisfied with. And he said, forget the earnout. That's just a bonus. So are you satisfied with the number? on that sheet. And so, you know, I thought about it for a while and I said, yeah, I am. So whatever, you know, we had projections of what our earnout was going to be. And it was probably about 50% less than what we anticipated on, on paper. But I, I, I to this day, I still think I'm, I was fine with the number that, that we had and anything above that was bonus. And so to be clear, uh, they were offering you six times EBITDA up front. On top Correct. of on top of that, there was a there was an incremental uh, amount to be made in an earnout. Yes, got yeah. it. If you'd if you'd maximize the earnout, like hit the the ultimate goal that you you actually end up hitting fifty percent of, what would what would that have netted it out at in terms of a multiple of EBITDA? Oh, sorry, I'm not sure I understand your question. Yeah, if you if you'd actually hit the earnout, like if you you'd achieved the earnout and then looked back. Uh, and said, okay, what multiple of EBITDA did, did the overall total consideration, including like the, the, the upfront payment that you got at closing, plus the amount, you know, the amount of money that you got on the earnout, like what, what multiple of your EBITDA would that have represented in total? Oh, uh, probably would have been about, oh, let me think about this. I never calculated that out. Um, probably about seven. Mm, okay. So the proportion of earnout was still relatively small. Yes, the earnout. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Got it. And so, did the the two people that you were employing, who were twenty two percent 
partners. Did did they agree to sell their shares in the same? Yes, yes, in they the same did. Way? Got it. How, yep. did, how did they feel about the offer? Um, I've just really highlighted what their what it's going to look like for them. So that obviously their cash payout and. Um, and then I, the win-win was that uh, the leasing company had so much more equipment coming back. So they were going to also gain on their commission sales because there was going to be a lot more products to sell. And uh, the big one, too, was um, they had the Apple contract. So, And the resale value on Apple equipment is very high. So that was another bonus for uh, my two partners that stayed on. What would you do differently if you had the negotiation to do all over again? Mm, I probably would have. Gosh, that's a good question. You know, you look back and you go, okay, if I would have hired that company that, you know, I went to that course on sell your business, would they have done any better? Um, but I mean, you could go woulda, coulda, shoulda for the rest of your life. And honestly, when I saw that number and, uh, I said, yep, yeah, I'm, I'm good with that. I, that was closure for me. So I, I think I'm pretty happy with the outcome. So you stayed on for one year. Is that right? Correct. Okay. And you were doing that from, from where, where were you working? I was remote back and forth from Canada to Australia. Got it. Got it. And and now you're full time. Yes, full time Australia and happily married and living the dream of Australia. Well, I mean, I, you might get a few eye rolls, but <laughs> this one because <laughs> you know a lot of I guess a lot of entrepreneurs will be listening to this saying, um, "Man, I want to do that." You know, uh, I, I want to move to may not all be Australia, but it could be Costa Rica or, or Mexico or wh wherever, you know, they dream that life may be better, uh, but feel that, that in order to do that, they, they still have to get their business to the next level. Maybe they're, I, you know, I've got a, I've got mm. a great friend who has a business who uh, it's probably a $5 million business. And, and I think her perception is that, you know, in order to sell, she wants it to be a $10 million business. And, and, and I, you know, I've had, we've had many conversations about this, you know, like what, you know, what's going to be different between five and 10 and, and right. like, what, what are you giving up in, in the journey? I mean, what advice would you have for people who, who say to you, yeah, Shelly, you know, I'd, I'd love to move to fill in the blank, but you know, my business just isn't there yet. I'm not ready yet. Yeah, that's a great question. And I think that when I was in that course, sell your business, that was some of the questions because there was, you know, a lot of people that had, uh, you know, their business for 20, 30 years and they're like, oh, not ready to, you know, do I give it to the kids? Do I sell it? And uh, somebody said, how do you know when you're ready? And you just know, you just know. Uh, if, if you have to question it, then I would say you're not ready. Interesting. So, I mean, you can't get any closer for me than that. I mean, just that you, ha you just know, like, it's kind of a little bit trite. It's like, how do you know you're in love? Well, you just know, well, like, well, there must be signs that you're ready. Like there must be sort of demonstrable cause, cause that's, I don't know that that's going to help anybody listening saying I'm just ready or not. Well, I think when, when I was at the negotiation stage and Steve was across the table and like I said, he's, he was a pretty intimidating person. Um, and we're kind of going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And, and, uh, Keith, my mentor said, okay, if you're going to get nitpicky, it's not going to happen. Like if, if you're going to not give, you both have to give, you know, a little bit in this negotiation or the deal's going to fall through. And at that point in time, it was like, okay. Yeah, I can give. And normally I'm usually pretty stubborn with my negotiations and I did give a little bit um, on, 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 my, on my side of the number. So uh, I think if you're not ready, I, I would have been more uh, adamant on not moving. Mm -hmm. So I, I did give a little. It's, it's good advice and it's a good sign uh, when you are willing to kind of make those concessions that, uh, because we have to live with it, right? Like forever, we have to live with the number and the, the conditions that we sell our businesses for. And, and the one thing that I've heard 
you know, Bo Burlingham wrote a wonderful book, Finish Big. If you haven't read it, it's worth a read. Uh, he, he, he talks about the regret many people have after selling. And of course, one of the big regrets is they, it's the woulda, shoulda, coulda. You know, could I have gotten more? Should I have sold what I sold? And, and they, you know, if you, you know, think about it, we, we run these businesses for 10, 20, 30 years. You know, you live with that decision for the rest of your life. And so it's got to be right. In your case, it sounds like you knew it was. Well, and I think just my history and my background of having that first company, the the first company that I took public and failing at that was ultimately the hardest thing that I've gone through in my life other than, you know, uh, family passing and and death. But it was just heart wrenching for me. So I think if you go through something where you've built it and it was so successful and then it crashes so fast (laughs) that, you know, it's being in business is not easy. And so building the second one and, you know, it was a great lifestyle business, but, uh, I think it comes to a point in time while you can sell it or you can, you know, keep going with the lifestyle business. But at that point in time, my life was changing and I was, uh, I'm making big changes to move and I did not want to continue with a business remotely, uh, this far away even though actually when I did sell my business, I didn't even have an office uh, in the facility. I think that also helped with the sale of the company was that I removed myself uh, from the day-to-day operations of the business. But uh, yeah, so for me, it was, um, I was ready to move on. I was looking for change. And what are you doing now with your time other than being blissfully married? Blissfully married. Yes. Newlyweds. Um, So we have four kids between the two of us and I started up another business called Maxis. Sorry, Maxim. I'm getting the two mixed up. Maxim Corporation, uh, where I mentor and to um, uh, train high growth uh, entrepreneurs. And I also am a trainer for the Entrepreneurs Organization. Hmm. Interesting. Where do people find find you? What's the best website to, or where's the social media feeds that they should go to? Yes, uh, definitely Facebook, Twitter, Maxim Corporation, or you can reach me at uh, Shelly, S-H-E-L-L-E-Y, at Maxim, M-A-X-U-M-C-O-R-P.com.au, and our URL is MaximCorp.com. Shelly Rogers, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at Facebook.com slash Built to Sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W.